Gerbil. Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, and this is increment 111, which means it's the 100th message or increment since we've separated physically on 100 increments ago. We'll begin with prayer. We'll be going to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, and we'll be also engaging what I like to call exegetical archery, where we fire the arrow forward a little bit into the epistle, see how deep the arrow goes. And so, Father, we thank you for this time that we have together, in which we have the eternal spirit who lives within us, revealing your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll renew in us or establish in us a steadfast spirit so that we may hold fast to our confession of Jesus, your Son, especially in these times. And we ask it in his name. Amen. This message is entitled or increment, will be entitled, Yesun to Hiu to Theu, Jesus the Son of God, Part 2, Roman numeral 2. And you have to go all the way back to increment 69 for the first one, where the same title is found, Jesus the Son of God. We just had seven increments on the Word of God. This is our third that will be entitled, Jesus the Son of God. Our passage, our verse, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, Therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. One of the movies I enjoyed in my life is called Master and Commander. It's adapted from a novel by Patrick O'Brien, a great author. And the movie is chock full of Christian symbolism. And at a key point in that movie, Master and Commander, you see a sailor's hands presented to the camera, and you see all eight exposed fingers, and on that two hands is a tattoo which reads, Hold Fast. And in a way, the author wants to draw our attention to that as a kind of motto. And the reason I say this is because Hebrews has the same motto. The whole exhortation can be reduced to those two words, Hold Fast really one word in the Greek, and it's the word krateo, K-R-A-T-E-O. Krateo, hold fast. It's not get a grip, for they already had a grip on this confession of Jesus as the Son of God, but it is keep the grip. Let's hold fast our confession In fact, we could entitle this message or this increment and perhaps the one to come as to hold fast or we could say 
to have and to hold fast because it begins with what we have and then it exhorts us to hold fast. Therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Having is the Greek word from the Greek word echo, E-C-H-O, echo, and it's ekontes. It's the present active characterizing participial form of the verb echo. So we have have and hold fast, to have and to hold fast. And the word for to have is next to the inferential conjunction un, O-U-N. I'm not going to get too exegetical today, but just enough to get us rolling. Un, this transitional phrase is typical of the genre called homily or the homily. This word un, as an inferential conjunction, usually translated as something like therefore, also appears in Hebrews 10.19 as a lead-in to a very powerful exhortation based, again, on what readers have. What they and we have is a great archpriest. And again, I say archpriest because that word is closer to the Greek text, which begins with the letters A-R-C-H. It's better to me, in my view, that is, to, than high priest or chief priest is arch priest. We have a great arch priest, mega archierus. And we're going to take a look at this in a moment. A great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Having an archpriest is a privilege in itself. It's one of those things that are freely given to us by God that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God makes known to us. And that's what he's doing now. The Holy Spirit is present. He's present here to teach. He indwells you. He's about ready to reveal to you one of the things freely given to us by God, which is a great archpriest who has not only passed through the heavens, but has been seated in the regions beyond the veil at the right hand of the incomprehensible majesty of God the Father. You say, that's one thing that is very good, but how does it affect us? Well, he's there for us precisely for us, as a representative, advocate, intercessor, mediary, intermediary, whatever you want to call him. He's all those things for us. If it is one of those things given to us by God that the Spirit of God desires to make known to us, then no doubt it's one of the things that the spirit of the evil age tries to conceal from us. For the knowledge of having such a great archpriest is incentive to hold fast in these days. Israel had archpriests, and they were called archpriests, in Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, and in many of his descendants. 
all the way down to the time of Christ. Having an archpriest is not a privilege unique to the addressees of Hebrews. Not even having a great priest, megas priest, megas for great, a mega archpriest is unique to Greek and to Jewish literature. Megas, M-E-G-A-S. Make that a M-E-G-A-S. The Levitical archpriest, in fact, was also called the great priest. Hoherus homegas. You'll see all this in print as usual. In the Greek text of Leviticus 21.10, the priest is called the great priest. So even that title, great priest, is not unique. Likewise, in Numbers 35.25, the high priest in Israel is called Ho-Heros Ho-Megas, the great priest. Those specific references made there to the Levitical priest's death, at which time his service as priest would cease and be passed to another. Later on, we're going to see that Jesus, because he lives forever in an incorruptible life, never has to pass on his priesthood to another. So, intriguingly, following the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, circa 516 B.C., there's a man named Joshua, not Joshua the son of Nun, the general in the book of Joshua, this one a different Joshua, whose name in the Greek is Yesu, like Jesus' name. And he is the son of Yosadak. That's I-O-S-E-D-E-K in the transliteration. Yosadak. Yesu, the son of Yosadak. Now that's a curious conflation, that name Yosadak because it's a curious conflation of Yosef, Joseph, and Melchizedek. Yosef, in Luke 4.22, when they said, to, said about Jesus, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? And, of course, Melchizedek, where that word king, Zedek, is in the suffix in Hebrews 5.6, etc. So, again... Yesu, the son of Yosedek, was called the great priest at the time when Israel was returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. So he's called Tohirios to Megalu, the great priest. That's in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 11 in the Greek text. Still again, it's not even unique that someone has passed through the heavens in Jewish literature. And in the cosmological perspective of the Jews, it wasn't unusual. It wasn't unique. It was unusual, but it was not unique for someone to have passed through the heavens. So we still don't have total uniqueness here. For example, there's Enoch. Enoch, in Hebrews 11.5 
is one of the faith heroes, the parade of faith heroes. It says in Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was transposed. And that means that he was translated but also transferred to a heavenly location from the earth. So he passed through the heavens, as we're going to see. By faith Enoch was transposed so that he didn't experience death. And he was never to be found because God had transferred him. For prior to his transformation, he was commended as having pleased God. That's the biblical reference. This is the same Enoch, the seventh from Adam, in Jude's epistle that had the prophecy and the vision of the Lord coming with ten thousands of his holy ones, Jude 14. But in a, the Ethiopic Apocalypse of Enoch, which was written in the second century BC, we have what is ostensibly Enoch's own record of that transference and that translation. And that's where we get the book of Enoch, or especially First Enoch, the book of Enoch, which is ostensibly a testimony of Enoch. It's a pseudepigraphal book applying the name Enoch to the author. And what it does is hypothetically presents what Enoch would have said and how he would have reported his translation into the heavenly spheres. So, for example, in 1st Enoch 14.8, Enoch is supposed to have said, And behold, I saw the clouds, and they were calling me in a vision, and the fogs were calling me, and the course of the stars and the lightnings were rushing me and causing me to desire. And in the vision, the winds were causing me to fly, and rushing me up high into heaven. So there's a man who passed through the heavens, Enoch. It was not unique for someone in Jewish literature or even in the scriptures to pass through the heavens. It was not unique for a priest to be called a great priest or even a great archpriest. Furthermore, in First Enoch the 70th chapter, Enoch records his journeys in which he was said to be lifted up in a wind chariot. And in 71 of Enoch, he says, quote, My spirit passed out of sight and ascended into the heavens. In the late 2nd century B.C., when Judea had become an independent kingdom under the Hasmonean dynasty, which was made up of descendants of the Maccabees, around 140 B.C. to 37 B.C., according to 1 Maccabees 13.42, Simon, by name, was called both great high priest, and again, that's the word archierus. That's why I say archpriest. Ilaria Ramelli did the same thing when she wrote about these priests or archpriests. It's spelled A. R-C-H-I-E-R-E-O-S in that 1 Maccabees 13.42 passage. And so because of the A-R-C-H prefix, I'd prefer to call Jesus archpriest over high priest. Although high priest is okay, I like to be a little more precise. 
So Simon was called a great archpriest, Archiarios Megalu, in that extra-biblical passage from the Maccabees. He was also called commander, speaking of master and commander, and who, of course, our master is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also our commander. This same high priest, Simon, was also called commander, and that's the Greek word stratego, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-O-U, stratego, which means soldier or commander. Now, this is not too far from the title's great archpriest, as we have it here in Hebrews 4.14 and Hebrews 10.21, and leader, both being applied to Jesus. Jesus is called a great archpriest, and he's called archegon, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-N, in two key passages, Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 12.2. He's the one who tasted death while in a campaign, we could say, far from God, as he endured the cross and who is now exalted to the right side of God. Jesus became the captain of our salvation, so that kind of smacks of the word commander, as he's called in some translations of Hebrews 2.10. He's called leader in others, initiator and founder, are also appropriate descriptors of him. In any case, there is a military implication here because Jesus is said to have destroyed the slanderer in that campaign, also known as the devil, who used the leverage of the fear of death to hold people in slavery all their lives long, according to Hebrews 2:14 to 15, which you may want to compare to John 12:32. A Gnostic influence of the writer to the Hebrews was proposed by Ernst Kosman in his Wandering People of God, the Wandering People of God, his own investigation of the study of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews. Since then, other commentators have shown, however, that the writer was not significantly influenced by Gnostic influencers. Gnostics evidently taught that when Jesus passed through the heavens, he passed through hostile regions in the heavens. Now, this is certainly not the emphasis of the teaching pastor or of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews, because he's showing a comparison or contrast here. His emphasis is between a contrast of the earthly and the heavenly tabernacles, Jesus passing through the heavens to the holy of holies in heaven, rather than through the parts of the earthly tabernacle to the earthly holy of holies. On the other hand, and this is also important, it should be observed that in Colossians 2.15, Jesus' ascension and passage through the heavens is connected with a triumphal procession following his victory over hostile rulers and authority a victory that he won decidedly through the cross in Colossians 2.14, where Paul says, with him was nailed the record of debt that stood against us with its obligations. When Christ was nailed to the cross, so was the record 
of debt that stood against us with its obligations. So forgive us our debts has already been answered. In the ascension of Isaiah, another Jewish writing, this time by a Jewish Christian, written probably late in the first century, maybe even early second century, the book called The Ascension of Isaiah. The writer, in chapters 6 through 9 of that writing, records Isaiah's supposed ascension into heaven. More importantly, however, in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.10 records Jesus' ascension far above the heavens after his descent to earth. And then the writer says, Paul says, in order to fill up all things, that is heaven and earth, with himself. This verse is significant, I'm speaking of Ephesians 4.10, not only as an ascension verse and a declaration that Jesus passed through the heavens, but also as a further attestation that God's intention is that all things in the heavens and the earth ultimately be summed up in Christ and thus comprised of him. Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. Moreover, 1 Peter 3, 22, and we've said before and we'll demonstrate further that 1 Peter has a lot of affinities with Hebrews. 1 Peter 3.22, where Jesus is said to have gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the principal angels having been subjected to him. I've said all that because Jesus' passage through the heavens is the subject here, and we have such a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Passing through the heavens not unique, title, great priest, not unique in itself. What is a unique privilege, however, is to have a great arch priest who has passed through the heavens after having made purification for sins. And so this exegetical archery goes back to Hebrews 1.3, where it says, having made purification for sins, he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. So we not only have a great priest who's passed through the heavens, but one who passed through the heavens after making purification for sins, and from other passages we know that's the sins of the whole world, and having put away sin itself as an entity by the offering of himself as a sin offering on the cross. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, and we'll see this happen again in Hebrews 4.15, no sin, had no sin. He who knew no sin became sin to remove sin. Put 2 Corinthians 5.21 together with Hebrews 9.26, and also John 1.29, for that matter. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos, the whole world, the whole universe. The sin in the whole universe, taken away. In fact, 
This, the implications of this astounding privilege that we have and the writer, the writer expl- explains to us, are worked out through the rest of this holy homily. In fact, this homily is kind of arranged in the same way as the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle, and it has its holy of holies, its central section, and its ultimate section. In one way, the scripture turns the horizontal tent right side up and stands it up because the Holy of Holies he's talking about is in the highest place, not the furthest reach of an earthly temple, but tabernacle, but the highest part of a heavenly one. Maybe you can picture this in your mind with the help of the Holy Spirit. For me, it's almost cinematic when we follow and trace Jesus' passage through the heavens. Luke leaves us with him ascending and blessing his disciples. Acts begins with him ascending and an angel saying, Stop gawking into the heavens. This same Jesus, whom you've seen ascending, will come again. That also is found in Hebrews 9.28. What we did not know, it's kind of a sequel to this, is that he passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished eternal redemption, as we're going to see when we shoot another arrow, exegetical arrow. So again, the implications of this astounding privilege are worked out throughout the rest of this holy homily. Immediately after the reminder of this unique privilege, the readers are encouraged once again to hold fast to their confession, meaning confession of Jesus as the Son of God. Again, what is unique is that we have a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens who is also the divine Son of God, the Son in whom God has spoken with definitive finality in these last days, to whom he has given all things, he has made him heir of everything. He holds everything together by the word of his power. He's seated next to the Father. That's all unique. He's the divine Son of God, who is also human. In Hebrews 4.14, we have a succinct summation then, of the whole exposition and exhortation of Hebrews. In other words, we could sum it up in this one verse. The explication or exposition in the first half, the exhortation in the second half of the verse. Therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, there's our confession, let's hold fast the confession. What we have is a great archpriest, What we do is hold fast to a confession. Now, there can hardly be a more comforting word than to be reminded that during this great clash of the eons or the ages, while we're passing through our own no man's land on earth, that we have a great arch priest in heaven. He is our great arch priest. He is our great 
archpriest. He represents us. He advocates for us. He intercedes incessantly for us. When we pray unceasingly down here, as we are urged to do, and as we habitually do only as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of him, not forcefully or coercively, but when we pray unceasingly, we are imitating our great archpriest. We are participating in his faithful love when we pray always for all the saints and in fact for all people, including those who hold positions of authority. We are never commanded to criticize, malign, mock, or slander those in positions of authority. We're commanded to pray for them. The king's heart is like a water channel in the Lord's hand. He directs it as he wills, says Proverbs 21.1. His word, God's word, can create conversions in the king's soul or in the soul of anyone in authority. In Psalm 19.8, which is the Septuagint of 18.8, don't fail in your priestly service, therefore, by becoming bitter or anger, angry. For the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God, says James 1.20. And that means no matter how righteous your anger feels to you. Paul was pretty excited that Jesus, God's son, and thematic in Romans was Jesus, the son of God, as it starts right off in Romans 1, 1 to 4. Paul was pretty excited that when Jesus, God's son, was not spared, but freely handed over for us to take away our sins, that he also rose from the dead and is an intercessor for us at the right hand of God. Paul was also pretty pumped that Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore, and now, he says, makes intercession for us at the right hand of God. At the beating heart and living center of Romans, Paul wrote this, and we studied this. In fact, we studied Romans in a pincer movement starting from the right flank all the way in Romans 16, and the then also the left flank in Romans 1, and press toward the center, the living center, I won't call it a dead center, the living center of Romans is right here, beginning in 31 of Romans 8. What can we say against these things? That means everything he's taught from Romans 1, 1 to 8, 30. Nothing, he said. If God is for us, and he is, who can be effectively against us? Answer, no one. Since indeed, verse 32, God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all, how will he not with him freely grant us all things? Who will bring an effective charge against God's elect? God, the one who justifies? Of course not. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, even more, and I love that word, even more, malon, M-A-L-L-O-N, malon, even more, who was raised up, 
who is at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf. That's right there. The even more in Romans is where the PT, the teaching pastor, takes up and expands all through the Hebrews homily. So it's well worth noting that what Paul wrote at the very heart of the epistle called Romans is the point of departure for the teaching pastor in the homily called Hebrews. Hebrews takes up where Paul says, even more. Looks like this in the Greek, in fact. De malon. Make that malon, de, M-A-L-L-O-N, de, D-E, de. Even more. That Jesus passed through the heavens has already been intimated in Hebrews 1.3. There, in the exordium, the Son, in 1-2, has made purification for sins, and he has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having passed through the heavens. Now, my three main commentaries, or commentators on Hebrews, are William Lane, Craig Coaster, and Harold Atridge. So I might be quoting from each of those, either in this message, 111, or in the next one, 112. And it's because they are very helpful to me in my study of Hebrews, and I've been reading all their commentaries, and I'm in the process of doing so now. Lane makes an important point here, William Lane, which is very helpful in showing a connectedness and a fluency of the text from Hebrews 4.11 to 14. He writes, quote, The implied reference to the heavenly sanctuary provides yet another dimension to the discussion of the place of rest in 4.1 to 11. Jesus' high priestly ministry, he says, is the guarantee that God's people will celebrate the Sabbath in his presence. So you see, there is a continuity and a fluency to this epistle. It doesn't just jump from one theme to a next and leave gaps between the verses. Jesus passed through the heavens as a great archpriest of an altogether different order of priesthood than that of Aaron. Harold Atridge, another excellent commentator, made the point that, quote, passed through the heavens is implicit in Hebrews 1.3, 1.13, and 2.9 and 10. Then, and this is very significant where we're going to go with our exegetical arrow, our exegetical Archery. Significantly, Atridge adds this, and this I, I love to reread because this is my thesis also. He added, This passage will later be described in terms of movement through the temple, and Christ will be depicted as entering through the veil into the true heavenly sanctuary. That's what I suspected from the beginning, and to have a commentator back it is also very kind of God to let that happen. 
the passage of Jesus through the plural heavens is comparable to the passage of the priest of the Levitical order, of the order of Aaron, from the outer court of the tent of meeting called the tabernacle. And the writer doesn't spend a whole lot of time describing all the details of that. But then he goes where the outer court is to the holy place, which is likened to another heaven, we could say, and then through the veil or the curtain to the holiest place or the place of utmost holiness, where the mercy seat is and where the glory of God is. And, of course, the two cherubim looking down at the mercy seat, etc. And so this is significant, so I'm going to repeat it. Harold Attridge makes the point that pass through the heavens is implicit in 1.3, 1.13, 2.9, and 10. And then very significantly, he added, this passage will later be described in terms of a movement through the temple and Christ will be depicted as entering through the veil into the true heavenly sanctuary. That's what it means that he passes through the heavens as a great archpriest. So this observation, and this will be the last movement of this increment, at least, this observation led me to engage in a little of what I call exegetical archery. That's shooting an arrow either backwards in the epistle, we've already done that, or forward in this homily, and that's what I call exegetical archery. We engaged in that quite a bit in Romans and so it's something that I want to use in future exegesis. The encampment, called the camp for short, as Hebrews 13.13 13 puts it, had the tabernacle for its very center. Now remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, there were two and a half million people. It was a community of two and a half million people. The tabernacle, very roughly, was in the center of this community. And then on each of the four sides, there were the community of, or the residences of the 12 tribes, three on each of the four sides. And then we have the tabernacle with its outer court and then its holy of holies. And that was in the center. The priests dwelt a little closer proximity to the tent on all four sides. Moses and Aaron were living right here at the entrance of the tent. Moses could go in any time he wanted to and any time God called him to. He had the unique privilege. The high priest went in once a year in the Day of Atonement, etc. I'm not going to do that in detail because the PT doesn't do it in detail. If we were to do all this stuff in detail about the tabernacle, we'd be distracted from our mission focus. That's another study for another time. It's very profitable to do that, but it's an entirely different exercise. So the encampment, as it was called, or the camp for short, had the tabernacle or tent for its center. Around the tabernacle were arranged the communities of tribes of Israel, three tribes on the west, three on the south, three on the east, and three on the north. Moses and Aaron and the priests resided near the entrance to the tent on the east. The Levites and the Kohathites 
near the tabernacle, nearer the tabernacle than the tribes on the south. The Levites and the Gershonites lived nearer on the western, nearer than the western tribes to the tabernacle on the west. And the Levites and Merarites closer to the tent than the tribes on the north. In other words, the priests had residences closer to the tabernacle than all the tribes on the north, east, west, and south. The tent itself was 150 feet long and 50 feet wide. The entrance from the east was about 30 feet wide. In the larger outer division of the tent, the priest would first approach the bronze altar, then the laver. This is all here in the outer court, the bronze altar, then the laver, the place of washing. Then he would enter into a veil or enter into a curtain to the holy place, the holy place. And this is why I want to take us into Hebrews 9. I want to shoot an exegetical arrow into Hebrews 9 to give some clarity to this. So the entrance from the east was about 30 feet wide. And the priest would enter the outer tent the bronze altar, then the laver. He would then enter into the holy place with the golden table of the bread of the presence, as it was called, the showbread, as it's sometimes called. There was also the golden lampstand and the altar of incense in that holy place. And the ark of the... Then he would go into a smaller room once a year on the Day of Atonement, the archpriest alone, and that's important, entered through a curtain into a 15-foot square room called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, in which there was then the Altar of Incense, the Ark of the Covenant. The archpriest alone would enter that room with the blood of sacrificial animals, to make atonement. He'd have to make atonement for himself and his own family as well as for all of Israel. And this was once a year. Once a year, the archpriest therefore passed through the outer room into the holy place and then into the holy of holies or the place of utmost holiness with the blood of of the animal sacrifices in order to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people of Israel. So this is what the writer is about in 4.14. Jesus didn't pass through the earthly outer tent into the holy place and into the holy of holies. He wasn't even qualified to be a Levitical priest. He was from the tribe of Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God. A strange admixture. He rather entered in, let's turn the tabernacle, let's stand it up and make it a heavenly tabernacle. Jesus passed through the outer heavens, through the holy place, into the holy of holies where the throne of God is and where he is now seated. In the outer court, as it were, at the brass altar, the cross, he said, it is finished. He took Therefore, the merits of his own death with him as he passed through the heavens 
to complete the act of atonement, not by the blood of animals or by the blood of sacrifices offered on earth, but through the merit of his own substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And so that's why I wanted to take an arrow and fire it into Hebrews 9, where the teaching pastor briefly described the tabernacle. Briefly, I say, and I love the way he does this. We'll start with verse 1, because I translated all the way from Hebrews 9, 1 to 14 for this increment. In Hebrews 9.1, now the first covenant also had its regulations for service and a this-worldly sanctuary. A this-worldly sanctuary. For a tent was erected, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, was the lampstand and the table of the loaves of presentation. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies, having the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden jar that contained the manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the place of expiation. We call it the mercy seat. Concerning these things, now listen carefully to this, he says, concerning these things we are not now speaking in detail. These things are spoken of in detail, if you're interested, in Exodus chapters 25 through 28. If you're interested, there are many good detailed studies of the tabernacle, in fact, that are very profitable to study, including a fairly basic one I recently looked at, by David M. Levi, or Levy, called The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah, Its Sacrifices, Services, and Priesthood, published by the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry in 1993. I have the 12th printing of paperback. It was not the teaching pastor's purpose to delineate all the details of this worldly tabernacle, the this worldly tabernacle. So it isn't ours either. As fascinating as that would be, and it's tempting to do so, but if we did it, we'd be spending a year distracted. It would be a distraction from the pastoral purpose of this homily. There are many times when the pastor who teaches is tempted to go in detail about a certain fascinating subject of the Bible but it would lead him to stray from his mission focus. This pastor that wrote this homily never strayed from his mission focus, which was to provide incentive through exposition to hold fast, for his readers to hold fast in a time of great cancellation cultural shaming that was going on at the time. Hold fast. My purpose is also to give you incentive to hold fast in a time of great shaming from a cancellation culture that's going to turn its evil intentions toward Christianity and already has. It already has in China. It already has in places in the Middle East and the Far East and in also our own country. Not very newsworthy to people. What is specifically within that mission focus is the description that follows, however. Hebrews 9, 6. Now these things having been thus set up, 
the priests, plural, enter the first room all the time to complete. And he uses a word that is very related to the theme of Hebrews, which is completion, epiteleo, to complete their service. So in this first room, this first holy place, after the outer court, the first holy place, there's priests all the time in there ministering and serving, daily, in fact. So the priests enter the first room all the time to complete their service. But into the second, the holy of holies, into the second room, the high priest enters alone once a year. This is also found in Leviticus 16, 17. Not without blood, never without blood does he enter to offer in behalf of himself. Why? Because he was a sinner. And for sins committed in ignorance by the people. Later on, we'll get into the difference between sins committed in ignorance and willful or intentional sins. Not without blood. Later on, we'll also find by looking at Hebrews 7 and 8, as well as 10, that Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he knew no sin, etc. Now, the word of God that penetrates to the separation of soul from spirit is making a distinction between the this worldly tabernacle and the tent that is not of this creation at all. That's another thing that is my intention, as well as this pastor's intention, get our attention away from things on the earth and place them on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God in Colossians 3, 1 to 2. Otherwise, we will lose our momentum in the spiritual life. We will get distracted. We will get sucked in to the present culture. We will compromise our confession. So we're going to move just a little further in Hebrews 9 before we sign off for today. Now the word of God then that penetrates this to the separation of soul and spirit also makes a distinction between the this worldly tabernacle and the tabernacle that is not of this creation. And there's the parallel from Hebrews 4.12 and 13 to 4.14. Hebrews 9.8 goes on to say, by this, and that means the repetitious action of the priests and the annual service of the archpriest, by this, the Holy Spirit was making it clear. Who was? The Holy Spirit was. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way, the word way here is hodos, H-O-D-O-S, we've already seen it in Hebrews 3.10. We'll see it again in Hebrews 10.20. That the way into the Holy of Holies had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a parable, he says in verse 9, for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented, which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, while he, as he wrote this, there was still this ongoing process. In Jerusalem, there still was 
the priest on the Day of Atonement once a year. There still was the activity of the priests all the time in the holy place. There still was this annual thing going on. But the preacher was saying, look, Jesus Christ passed through the heavens. He's already in the Holy of Holies. There's no need to repeat these sacrifices. And there's no need for you to compromise your confession of Jesus, the Son of God, and his once and for all unrepeatable final sacrifice. There's no need for you to compromise that in order not to be shamed by your Jewish contemporaries or persecuted by your Roman, Greco-Roman cultural contemporaries. That's the point. Verse 10 of Hebrews 9 goes on to say, having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, compared to Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with these. These are not the present kingdom of God is all about, foods and drinks and dietary legalism, etc. So again, let's begin with verse 9 and go on to, through verse 10. This is a parable. What is? the earthly, this-worldly tabernacle. It's a parable for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented which are not able to complete the conscience of the worshiper. That is, not able to cleanse it, purify it, having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings. Regulations involving the body imposed until the time of the new order. One more word, and I think we'll save the rest for the next increment. The word here, the new order, we've already looked at before. D-I-O-R-T-H-O-S-I-S. Deorthosis. And it means a time of reformation, but it's also related to the restoration of all things, the regeneration of, the, of creation, the new creation, etc. All these things are going to come into play. So the time of the new order or the time of rectification is another way of defining it, correlates with the times of the restoration of all things, the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth, etc. So what we're doing here by exegetical archery is explaining the passage of Jesus through the heavens by a comparison of the passage of the earthly priests in the earthly tabernacle to an earthly holy of holies. That comparison is also, of course, a great contrast. One thing this writer does with brilliance is he uses the law of similarity and dissimilarity to compare Jesus Christ's great arch priesthood with the priesthood of Levi and Aaron. And he's going to show this at the heart of this epistle. So we thank you, Father, for yet another opportunity to view Jesus, to see him, to see him passing through the heavens on our behalf, to see him having passed through the heavens, sitting at your right hand, enthroned, crowned, with the glory of a king and the honor of a great archpriest. We ask that you'll bless this message to the hearers and that you'll bless our progress in this heavenly 
homily so that when we get back together and begin to worship once again in physical proximity, we will do so in the right spirit, with a clean heart, and with a right spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.